Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1? We are looking at Jesus in the Gospel of Mark as his kingdom advances in this world. It's just been so good. I love this Gospel. This, this Gospel is, is a helpful Gospel for impatient people. I'm an impatient person. And, and Paul and uh, Mark keeps it moving, boy. He... He loves the word immediately. He uses it over and over again. Action moves fast. It's vivid. He likes to give details. He's an excellent storyteller. He talks about green grass and cushions at the front of boats and such a helpful storyteller. And I think it's a great book to read if you haven't read the Bible before or if you want to sit down with a friend who doesn't know know what the Bible's about. It's a very helpful book to dive into and just get a, an action-packed picture of Jesus on the move. It's so good. And today we'll pick our story up where we left off last week in Capernaum. Uh, we're, we'll be reading from Mark 1.29 and following, but just to let you know where we are, we're in Capernaum, really the headquarters of Jesus' Galilean ministry. You know, for most of Jesus' entire life, he never went out a outside of a 30-mile radius. Jesus pretty much stayed within what many of you commute every day. Really is astounding the impact he had when he was so not well-traveled. But boy, did he have an impact in what we call the, the evangelical triangle, this area in Galilee. And here he is. This, this is Jesus in Galilee, his home region, now in Capernaum. We saw him last week cast out a demon from a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Very dramatic scene that happens in Capernaum. It's on the Sabbath, and now we move into our next scene. It's, it's important to realize that these places aren't mythical, imaginary places. The Bible can be viewed that way sometimes, but these things really happened in real places with real people in real time. Don't let the Bible become mythical to you. When I went to the Holy Lands, the thing that was most impressive to me was how unimpressive most things were. They were, they were smaller than I had imagined and dusty and dirty and I, I would see excavated sewers running in the streets. It was anything but some sort of CGI imagery. It, it, was, it was real and normal and unimpressive as could be. Some of these towns you could, well, Ben Orr could hit a baseball from one end to the other. I was going to say I could, but that's not the case. But, um, but some of these places are not big or impressive. And it's important to realize that Capernaum was a real place where Peter and Andrew lived. This is a, it's a wonderfully excavated place. This is a photo, photograph of Capernaum. There's the synagogue, not original to Jesus' time, but the place where that synagogue was and now has been excavated. You can see the ruins of the town there. This is the octagonal church, this, this pilgrimage destination for people who wanted to go to Peter's hometown in this very area. There's the, an internal shot of the synagogue, but, but they, they're thinking Peter's home is right here, right in this area of this cluster of homes here. You can go to Capernaum and see where this story takes place. It's, it's really wonderful, but let's, let's dive into our story now and remember that this really happened. Luke, I, I'm Mark 1, 29. You ready? And immediately, there it is, he loves that word, keeps it moving. And it's, it's not just a rhetorical thing, it's wanting us to realize Jesus is 
on the move. He's making massive progress here. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So we're up to four disciples now. Remember, we just had this, this cleansing of this, this demon-possessed man, this healing of him in the synagogue. And now right after that, they go probably not very far from the synagogue to Peter's house. Peter and Andrew's house with James and John, four disciples. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever. We have no description of Peter's wife, but I just have images of her thinking of how tough she must have been being married to Peter. Um, so, so here's his mother-in-law in the home as well, and it says she lay ill with a fever. For us, very often, a fever can be a minor thing. It can be a symptom of something major. It can be something we just power through, but fever here is a general term to describe illness. It's not just a symptom of an illness. It was a general term to describe sometimes severe, even life-threatening illnesses. So she is in a bad way. So it's a serious illness she has here, possibly life-threatening. And immediately, there it is again, they told him about her. Listen, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So sundown, Sabbath, coming to an end here. Now the public display of the healing ministry takes place. People refrain from coming because of social, traditional, religious convention about Sabbath observance. Jesus isn't uh, abiding by these. He's healing in the synagogue, in the home, even though the religious traditions would have prevented that. He's got a much different agenda than a lot of the religious leaders. And so here comes the public seeking of healing now that the Sabbath is coming to an end. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Big crowds now thronging here in Capernaum. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And then listen to this. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. So interesting. We'll get back to that. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, so after a long, intense, no doubt, emotionally, spiritually draining day of intense ministry with needs pressing in all around him, what does he do? What's his next order of business for his life? And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and, An and, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. That's probably a weak word, searched. Hunt could be a good translation here. They were on a mission to find him. 
He was gaining great popularity. People were thronging to be with him, to see him, and he went off by himself. It doesn't seem like it's the right move here, and they're looking for him, seriously looking for him, and they finally find him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. This man is unclean, a term to describe his physical and social condition. The uncleanliness of this disease had spiritual connotations, but it, in the legal system of Jewish practice, made him a social outcast. He had a uh, contagious disease, and he was declared unclean among religious people. So he's an outcast. He's unclean, and he wants Jesus, the holy man of God, to make him clean. So what does Jesus do? 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately, <laughs> the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he's breaking religious convention and traditions of men that would keep him from healing people on the Sabbath, but he isn't disrespecting them. He's still aware of them and working within them, and he sends them basically on a journey to Jerusalem to see a priest there but he disobeys Jesus. But when he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. We're really talking about the king here. And the, the first point I want us to realize about all the things we're learning about Jesus is that he's the conquering king. It's so easy to get actually distracted by the miracles, and a third of the gospel of Mark is miracle. It's reporting of Jesus doing miracles. It's a major agenda in Jesus' ministry and in the gospel of Mark in particular, but it's easy to get distracted by them, and we've got lots of examples of missing the point of the miraculous. The point of the miraculous is Jesus is the conquering king. Because things like disease and demon possession are the result of the tragic condition we're in as a fallen human race. When Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and shook their fist in his face, the whole human race fell and so did all of creation with it. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're made in God's image. Nothing else is described that way. And when we have a fractured relationship with God, it sends everything out of kilter. It's got an effect 
in everything. And so things like disease, things like spiritual powers of darkness now dominate in this world and have a horrible impact every day. Just read the news and tell me we don't have a serious sin problem. Tell me this world isn't filled with darkness. Take an honest look in your own heart and tell me that that's not a problem there too. That we, we have a sin problem and we have a terrible out of sorts relationship with God and so does all of creation and when Jesus comes as God in flesh, he comes as the king taking back his kingdom. And he is asserting his reign and rule and righting the wrong. He's demonstrating what he's about. He's overcoming powers of darkness. And so the first thing we need to come to terms with is the reality of the spiritual realm, the reality of the miraculous it's been interesting in my life. When I was younger, people who didn't believe the Bible often did so because they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the miraculous. I think there's been a big shift in our culture, and most people I meet today don't have a problem with this. There, there aren't a lot of naturalists running around like there used to be when I was a kid. Most people were like, all right, cool, miracles, whatever. And, and uh, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Happy for you. Go have a day, Christian. And, and so th there's not necessarily this strong opposition like I used to experience. Still there in some cases, but, but the miraculous is real. The supernatural is real, and powers of darkness are real. And we need serious help and guidance and empowering to be able to engage these realities. It's not just something you figure out on your own. You need someone who actually is able to conquer powers of darkness in the spiritual realm. And the Bible puts a massive priority on this, that our primary difficulties, challenges, battles are not fleshly. They're not just on a human horizontal plane. They're deeply spiritual. They're, they're combated on a spiritual plane. Listen to Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The spiritual realm is real, evil is real, and Jesus rules. He's the conquering king. It's fascinating, isn't it, when we have videos coming into our living rooms of people being beheaded, and we don't even have the terminology to describe what we've seen. We, we have great evil displayed in this world and we've lost even the vocabulary to describe it in our culture. Hopefully as Christians we still have that vocabulary. Hopefully we still have definitions of things that say that's evil, that's wrong, that's sinful and it's not just them out there but we're part of the problem. And Jesus is the solution. Evil's real and he rules over it. And in these stories, we have the unclean, the unholy, the dark, the sinful, converging with the Holy One of God, the, the man who the Spirit came upon. Listen to one commentator. Just as the unclean spirit controls the man in the synagogue, and in our story here, uh, this, this man was ca had a demon cast out, and, and Jesus casts out this demon, right? He, he lays hands on him. He heals him. 
Just as the unclean spirit controls the man in the synagogue, the Holy Spirit has taken control of Jesus. Remember how the spirit in the first verses of this chapter comes upon Jesus and anoints him for his public ministry and then leads him out into the wilderness? So unclean things are in the world and the man who is holy, set apart from those unclean things, is now moving into this world. This commentator goes on. The one who preaches the gospel of God is the holy one of God. And when the holy one and the unclean meet, it's no contest. The one John predicted would unleash the spirit of God and immediately disarm the unclean spirit, the ousting of the unclean spirits affirms that we have not in the battle with evil a loneliness. We're not alone in this. We've got a savior. We've got someone who rules over these powers in our lives. We're not helpless victims. God has won the decisive victory in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's delivered the decisive blow in that at the cross and in the resurrection has victory over it. And that's where he's heading in these stories. And when we align ourselves with the conquering king, we conquer with him. And when we don't align ourselves with the conquering king, we go down with the spirits of darkness. Something that's maddening to me is rhetoric without reason. I hate it. I hate pithy, motivational cliches that don't have reasons underneath them because they give people an immediate sense of hope that isn't real. You know this anti-bullying campaign, their, their motto is, it gets better. I'm all for what they're wanting to do, but I can't imagine being a kid who's bullied and having somebody say, it gets better, and I, and I want to say, why are you saying that? Do you have any reason that I can hold to? Do you have any real basis for that hope? Who says it gets better? Why does it get better? Where are you getting this? We just throw out all this empty rhetoric with no reason. Well, as Christians, we actually can say that with meaning. For those who align themselves with the king, the conquering king, it gets better. And even though life is filled with trials and difficulties and challenges, when we are in the kingdom that's advancing, subjects under the king, it does get better. It will get better. You can guarantee it. And the reason is Jesus. He really is the one who ensures it will get better. Apart from him, I don't think it will. I think just the opposite actually is the result. When you separate yourself from the king, from the creator who's taking back his world in a, a, a display of his power and goodness, that's when things get better. Jesus is the conquering king. He's the one who rules and reigns. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And even though we still feel the blows in this world, Jesus has overcome, and one day the battle will be done. Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus is also the compassionate king. One of you pointed this out beautifully. He touches Peter's mother. He apparently even helps her up with this touch. He's the king. These healings are pointing to something much bigger than the healing, than the person being healed. But in that grand scheme of things, Jesus has a personal, attentive, intimate, compassionate pity, a caring. 
He loves these people. Over and over again, we see Jesus touching sick and demon-possessed people. A physical touch is an important thing. And it demonstrates something powerful, especially when that person is contagious, has something like leprosy. Especially when that person's demon-possessed and could do something to you. Especially when they have a fever and you could contract whatever they have. There is a tendency and an understandable one to run in the other direction from suffering. To run the opposite way. It's, it's totally reasonable. And here comes the conquering king moving toward people, touching them with physical affection. You know, this Ebola outbreak is amazing, isn't it? And then you've got these courageous Christians like Kent Brantley, who for the sake of the gospel and for the love of Christ that's pouring out of his heart to others, will go and risk getting that disease because someone needs to help these people. He thinks his getting of Ebola that he's now been cured from was because there was no one left but this man's wife to carry him to medical help. And so Kent Brantley carried this man. His wife couldn't do it, and everybody else scattered, and so he, he picked this man up and carried him to medical help. He, he thinks that's probably how he got it. Oh, what a beautiful demonstration of Christ-like love. We need to be people who are willing to be that loving and courageous in that love, and not just for physical maladies, but, but social as well. Are there people that you need to move toward who are marginalized and outcast and, and maybe a little scary, but, but you, you need to move toward them. I went to the, the Grace Fullerton one-year celebration. It was, it was wonderful, and people got up and talked about what's been going on, and there was a man who got up and said, I grew up as a ward of the state, and I have had a really rough life, and, and he said, about 15 years ago, I became a Christian, and and I've been to lots of churches since then. And he said, do you know that churches, plural, have asked me to not come back? And this church has warmly embraced me like a family. And he was at the men's conference this weekend. And, and I could tell that, that embrace was continuing. Oh, I love to hear things like that. That we're people who will move into people's lives. Even when... It's a little risky. Even when it's a challenge, that's the sort of people we need to be because that's what Jesus is like and because that's what Jesus did for us. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're someone who has a relationship with God in Christ, it means God came to you in Christ, in your sickness, in your brokenness, and he touched you. He laid his hand on you and he healed you. And although there still are some symptoms of the disease that he's still working out, you've been healed and you're in relationship with him. And because we've been loved that way, we need to love that way. He's the compassionate king. He's the king throughout Mark and through the other gospels who touches people, who goes to this little girl has di who's died, and he says, oh, little girl, Talitha Kumi, arise. And he touches her and he gets her up and he makes sure they get her some food. He's the one who touches the blind man's eyes and heals him, who touches the deaf man's ears and heals him, who knows in detail the plight people are in, that the woman had had this disease for 12 years, or the man couldn't walk for 40 years, or the widow's son who died was her only one. He knows your details. 
He loves you. He cares about you at that level. He's not so busy. He's not distracted. Oh, he's with us in all of our stuff. Every second of every day, count on him. That's the compassionate king he is. He's the conquering king, but he's the compassionate king in the midst of the power. Wouldn't it be tragic if all he were were the conquering king and not the compassionate king? Wow, that'd be terrifying. And actually, wouldn't it be pretty tragic if he were the compassionate king and not the conquering king? Well, thanks for the gesture. Thanks for reaching out and all, but I'd like you to be able to actually solve my problems. Thankfully, Jesus is the conquering king and the compassionate king. It's glorious news. That's who he is. Three, as one of you pointed out, he's the prayerful king. Jesus, in his human nature, his human ministry, commits himself to spiritual disciplines. He spends his time, he spends his life devoted to the things that will help him overcome temptation in his in his life, live righteously, maintain his relationship with the Father in obedience, and he becomes that for us. He overcomes temptation in our place. He becomes our example in all things. And he does it by very simple, disciplined, obedient faithfulness in the ways we know we grow, like prayer. He gets up early in the morning, no doubt exhausted, no doubt with lots of things bearing down on him, lots of things on his mind, but he gets up, he carves out the time in a disciplined fashion to spend time with the Father. And the details of Jesus' life are not what we emulate. The details of Jesus' life are, are, are being male, being Jewish, being a carpenter. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus is that relationship he has of intimacy with God. And please realize that's not just something because of his divine nature. That's something he grows into. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grows in these things in his human nature. And he grows the same way we do. By being men and women of prayer and carving out the time to do that as a priority in our lives. To be men and women of the word who spend time in God's word. To be men and women of fellowship devoted to meaningful relationships in the local church serving and giving, all these ways we grow, proclaiming, being great commission-minded, all lead up to our growth. And so we're committed to these things. What a beautiful example Jesus gives of a disciplined prayer life. And this was true of the word. This was true of his uh, fellowship life. It says that as was his custom, he went to the, went to the synagogue on the first day of the week. He was disciplined in these things, and we must follow in his footsteps in this. He goes to a desolate place. Often the desolate place in the Bible is where the divine and the demonic meet and go to war. And when Jesus overcomes the demonic in his temptation in the desert in a desolate place, he begins that conquering, victorious advance that we become part of and enter into. And now prayer for us cannot just be warfare, which it certainly is, but a time of Sabbath, a time of peace, a time of rest with God. A place where angels give comfort as they did to Jesus. A time for secluded prayer shows us that Jesus isn't working magic. He's depending on the power of God to accomplish these things. And he's getting clarity and direction on the details, the judgment calls of his ministry. 
Which leads us to our next point. He is the wise king. It's counterintuitive what he says when they come and say, hey, the crowds are looking for you. Let's go. Things are moving. Here we go. They had all sorts of ideas and agendas about how Jesus should now conduct himself. And he said, I know, and I've spent a lot of time in prayer, and so let's get out of here. And he says, he says to the demons, you're not going to say anything about this. You just shut up. And they do. He says to the leper, don't say anything. Throughout the book of Mark, we're going to see what some have called the messianic seeker. What's he up to? Why is he doing this? Because he's wise. He's not driven by popularity. He's not driven by p- the latest opinion polls or trends or, or, or uh, self-esteem building or kingdom building in the earthly sense. No, he's not doing that stuff. He's walking in wisdom. He's not driven by the latest thing. He's driven by the wisdom he's gleaning from God in his times on his knees. Jesus is the prayerful king. He's not the celebrity healer, right? He's not the one liking to make grand displays of of his importance, right? Uh, He's making sure there's time to sow the word so it grows to the point it needs to before he goes to the cross. He's timing things out according to his agenda he's receiving from the Father. He's not letting the crowds decide what happens. Oh, do we need to hear this? In this culture and in the church, popularity is how we define success very often. Do you like me? We're we're just running around saying, please like us. Do you like me? Oh, please like us. I know you don't like us as Christians, but please, that can never be a motivating factor for us. We need to be single-minded and focused. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem to go to a cross, and even when his disciples say, no doing, he says, get behind me, Satan. I'm heading to the cross, and I'm heading in my timing. I'm heading according to my agenda. And he's accused of stirring up trouble. He never did that. He actually tried to quell it all the time. Right, The kind of trouble they accuse him of. Oh, he wants to cause trouble in the right way. But as, as far as causing up dissension politically, that's not what he was about. He was he is someone who had a very different agenda. Oh, there will come a day when the secrets will be revealed and Jesus will be undeniably seen to be the risen Lord. And then we'll shout it from the housetops. But on the way to the cross, Jesus is navigating things very strategically and shrewdly. And we see another agenda that instead of riding this miraculous display train, he makes preaching the centerpiece of his ministry, right? He says, that's what I came for. Preaching is this mighty act at the center of all the other signs and mighty acts. It doesn't mean we don't engage on a spiritual level and engage spirits of darkness and seek healing. But it means that the center of it all is the preaching of the gospel. That's what the prophets did. That's what John the Baptist said he came to do, to preach the kingdom of God being at hand. Uh, Jesus comes and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? To proclaim good news to the captives. He sent me to proclaim liberty to them and and that they can recover sight and find freedom. Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And when the apostles carry on his ministry, they do the same thing, teaching and preaching publicly and from house to house. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. 
at the heart of it all is the communication of the good news of Jesus Christ. And disconnected from that, the miracles can actually be harmful things. They can lead us astray from the core message of freedom from our ultimate enemies, freedom from our ultimate oppression, freedom from our ultimate disease of sin, and separation from God. That's what Jesus heals us from. That's why we're told to preach in season and out of season. That's why preaching is this, this centerpiece of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the church. Because it defines everything else for us. It helps us see everything in light of Jesus. And that's what we need to do. If we don't see the healings and the, and the dramatic displays of demons being cast out and, and God working in our lives powerfully as the result of the gospel that we proclaim centrally, we're missing the main point. That's why we seek to be a gospel-preaching church. That's why we seek to be a Christ-preaching church. Because he is the answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus gives us the victories, the conquering, compassionate, prayerful, wise, and preaching king. Oh, he's here for you. Jesus meets all your needs. We're just his instruments. We're just his mouthpiece this morning. And please come to Jesus. If you're a leader in our church, would you, would one or two of you, a man and a woman on each side especially, just come up and pray with people. As the service closes, if you want prayer for any of these needs we've mentioned this morning, Jesus can meet them. And then after the service closes, we've got a half hour in between services. You can, you can pray and be prayed for, and these folks up front would love to do that. And I would too. I'll be up here too. So let me pray for us. Lord, we're grateful that you uh, have sent your son, and he joyfully came, and the spirit made it all happen. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus, that he came and is taking back his kingdom. Lord, thank you for the joy of being subjects in that kingdom, under his rule and reign and lordship. Lord, please help us to rest in him, depend on him, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. I pray it would continue to feed us. For anyone who's never trusted Christ, I pray that this morning they would turn from their sin and lean wholly on Jesus, their compassionate, conquering king. For those of us who do know Christ, I pray that we would lean more heavily than ever before on him and what he's done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.